Hey guys, it's Angela Blair and welcome to All Strings Attached. We have an essential episode for you guys today. More and more these days, it seems like people are forgetting how to just go on a date. Just ask any college student. On campus, it seems like there are two options, hooking up or opting out of romantic life completely. Now, no doubt there are people making it work, developing medium and even long-term relationships, but everyone thinks everyone else is just hooking up. And so they either go all in or stay away from dating completely and lock themselves in the library. Now, there's a whole range of healthy experiences in the middle ground between Tinder and 2 a.m. study sessions, but according to the experts and research, we're losing sight of them. Dr. Anna Moreland wants to change just that. As a professor at Villanova University with a background in human studies and philosophy, she's helping to rewrite the dating script on campus. She's taught everything from abstract theology to practical life skills. She's the kind of professor who will give you an in-depth lecture on the four types of love one day, then the next, tell you to ask someone out for homework. She has her students ask someone out in person, I know, in person, on the sort of date where you actually have to sit down and communicate. She's helping her students rediscover what is that middle ground of romantic life. And today, she's going to help us do that as well. Here's my conversation with Dr. Anna Moreland. Anna Moreland is an associate professor of theology in the Department of Humanities at Villanova University. She's also the director of the University Honors Program at Villanova, and she received her bachelor's in philosophy at the University of Maryland College Park and her master's and PhD in systemic theology from Boston College. A professor since 2006, Dr. Moreland teaches on theology, faith, and reason, and shaping an adult life. She's also co-writing a book called The College Guide to Adulting, How to Major in Life. Dr. Moreland, thank you so much for being on with us today. Delighted to be with you, Angela. You have quite a resume. Do you have any time to sleep? (laughs) I sleep very well. Thank you. So, so impressive. You know, I am so excited for this conversation because I just love reading about your background in philosophy and theology, and I could go a million ways, but first I want to just start with what drew you to this area of focus for theology and faith and reason? As you noted, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, and I just wanted to keep on on studying that and my undergraduate mentor mentioned that I, I would learn sort of in a, in a more robust way in a department of theology. And so I started studying and it was a very different time when I was in my 20s. We didn't have to have our life plans and our professional goals and our, you know, the sort of pressure to, to get a job in the next five minutes. I honestly, I didn't feel that when I graduated from college. So I started my graduate work and had a great experience. And, and then I, I got a job which is amazing. And I'm really happy at Villanova. I've been teaching there for 15 years and it's a loophole in life being a college professor. You are on the ground floor, on the front lines of the battlefield, really with young minds figuring out who am I apart from their families, apart from that little bubble we all have growing up 
What have you seen over the last 15 years in the changes of your students? I am really fortunate to be able to accompany students from about 18 to 21 in a really wonderful and yet fragile chapter in their lives. What I've noticed in the last 15 years is that students come to college really equipped to, they've got great organizational skills, great study skills, time management is wonderful, they're ready to kill it in college. But then four years later, when they're trying to cross the threshold from college into adulthood, they really lack some serious skills to flourish as adults. They lack skills when it comes to the meaning of work because the pressure to succeed has really crushed them really before they've even arrived to college and universities. They utterly lack a vocabulary around leisure, around what to do with free time. Social media there has kind of ravaged the landscape of leisure, I would say. And then they're really ill-equipped to navigate intimate relationships. I think the collegiate landscape is pretty toxic in that respect. You have just one main class that you teach. What is the name of that class? Right now, since I'm now directing the honors program, I teach a lot less. The one class I teach in the honors program is called Shaping an Adult Life. It is the third course in a sequence of courses that students can take in the honors program. The first is called Shaping a College Life, which helps students adapt, freshmen in particular, adapt to to college. The second is Shaping a Work Life that does the typical kind of backpack to briefcase It approaches those topics, but in a deeper way, it gets students to start thinking more profoundly about the meaning of work. And then mine is the full-fledged three-credit course that mostly seniors take before graduating that's called Shaping an Adult Life. And it examines these three areas of work, leisure, and relationships. So what makes an adult life when it comes to relationships? Like what if we could have the cliff notes on that? I think there are two questions embedded in what you've just asked. One is the larger kind of what makes an adult an adult with some marker of adulthood. And I would just say, I would just give you one image. When you've moved from being a sponge to being a fountain, when you've moved from absorbing influences, absorbing material, absorbing voices from the outside, and you've then become the fountain for people around you, you spend your life kind of emptying out into other people. It seems to me that's the main marker from moving from being basically a teenager to an adult. And that takes several years, of course, and many people find that in marriage, they find it in parenting, but there are a lot of other ways to become fountains in your 20s and 30s and as a adults. But then you've asked a particular question about relationships. And I will say that what really concerns me, I've grown in my concern about the ability of young adults to navigate intimacy. And it's not because hookups are a problem in college. It's actually not that. I think there's a growing epidemic of loneliness across college campuses. It affects friendships and it affects intimate relationships. Students are reaching the end of college, not having said, I love you to anyone other than their mother or their cousin or their platonic friend. Not once, ever. It's just astonishing to me. And if they're not developing their relationship muscles in college, those habits graduate with them and they're going to enter into their 20s and it's going to be much harder to learn to navigate intimacy. That reminds me actually of an article that focused on your work and what you have seen. And you said, you know, there are hookups, there's the hookup culture, but then there's people that aren't doing that. 
but the hookup culture is still impacting them because they're saying, Hey, I rather just opt out because I don't want to do that. And everybody just wants to hook up. So you know what? I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to focus on myself and not worry about it. Is that what you're you're seeing is the complete contrast there? It's kind of one or the other. That's right. So the social scientific data shows that way fewer people, college students are actually hooking up, A, than other college students think that they are, but B, in contrast to previous generations. So opting out is much more of a real option on college campuses today than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. But then it's also true that those who opt out, those narratives are reinforced by their parents and their faculty and the adults in their lives who say, look, you need to focus on your professional life. Relationships are going to be there when you've worked your stuff out. When you've decided whether you're going to graduate school or what job you're going to get, focus on you. Don't worry about relationships. You don't have time for that. And that is a really, really damaging message to send to our young adults today because it means that they will never have time for that. If they're not making time for real friendships and real intimate relationships in college, they will not know how to do that in their 20s. And it will have generational effects in the years to come. Yeah. And, you know, not many professors would do this, but I also heard that you have assigned your students to actually ask someone out on a date in person. So how did you come up with this assignment and what is kind of the step process, if you will, for that? Because that can be pretty terrifying if you're not used to asking someone out. That's right. So I adopted this assignment from Carrie Cronin, who's in the philosophy department at Boston College. She has been offering this dating assignment for years, and I have been offering it for about a decade. It's a very basic assignment. Carrie is convinced, and I agree with her, that the social script for dating is completely lost and that students need to rehabilitate the social script, not in a way that brings back the 1950s, but in a way that offers them an alternative to either opting out or hooking up, a real relationship with a real person on the other side of the table at Starbucks. And when I first offered this dating assignment, students had to ask somebody out on a date in person. There are all sorts of rules around it. It has to not last very long. They have to pay. If you ask, you pay. And then they end up writing a short reflection paper on it. And I will say that the first time I read those reflection papers, I was thrown back on my heels, not thrown back on my heels by what I read by that my young women students, but what I read from my young male students. That was not something that I was expecting. What they wrote about kind of the dehumanizing effects of the hookup culture on campus. And again, that culture can be can happen in students' minds, not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're opting into it, but just sort of it, it shapes their their imagination, right? So the next year, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to do this again. And I even started doing it last year for the first time in this Shaping Adult Life class because I, I did it in this freshman class that I teach. But last year, I had this conversation in class where I asked students whether anybody had said, I love you to another young person versus, you know, to a mother or something. And of the 16 students, I think only three raised their hands. And so I looked out and I just said, you are all have to do an emergency dating assignment because it cannot be that they haven't put themselves out there like that, sort of made themselves vulnerable in that sort of way. These are 21-year-olds. I mean, I had said I love you, I think maybe to five different guys by the time I was 21. I do have a question though, because that's interesting because my husband, I was really kind of his first very serious relationship. He played sports professionally and 
was drafted out of high school. So he kind of had a different experience. He actually never had a college experience, but still, I mean, he was social and went to events and had the ability to be in a serious relationship, but he just wanted to wait until he really felt like he always said, I'm dating for marriage, not dating to date. Right. So I was really one of the first girls he ever said, I love you too. And we have a a great marriage. So do you think that when you say they need to say, I love you, is that in a romantic relationship or you're saying just also to friends or people that they really care for and develop those deep relationships? That's right. So that's a really good question. I am in the same situation you are married. I married my husband who had never said, I love you to anyone else, but, and I'm not saying that that's an alternative that should not be on the table for young people. But I think they should develop the relationship muscles that makes that I love you a possibility, right? They should be able to make themselves vulnerable to another person. I certainly did not do not do the dating assignment to try to encourage students to say I love you to anyone, right? But basically to try to encourage them to make themselves vulnerable because these students will socialize in packs. They're like wolves. They socialize in packs. And they don't learn to make themselves vulnerable from a romantic perspective. And that's what I'm encouraging. Yeah. Well, and my dad is single. He's in his 60s. And the stories I hear dating is really hard for that age group as well. I mean, do you think this is just the loss of just how to date and being intentional and pursuing? Do you think that's lost among the generation mostly? Or do you think it's across all age groups? Yeah, so I think it's it's across all age groups, but there's something particular going with our young people because for your father's generation, dating could be difficult because heartbreak has been experienced in the past because of broken relationships in the past. For the 21-year-olds, dating is hard because they have no idea how to do it at all. They've never been in a position to, to be in a heartbreak. They're protecting their hearts at all costs. And so that, I think, puts them at a severe disadvantage. Well, now we've got Tinder, Bumble, Hinge. We've got all sorts of apps. What are your thoughts on dating apps? Do you think they're damaging or do you think there's benefits? So I'm not exactly anti-dating app, full stop. I mean, I think just like the iPhone, the smartphone, it's a powerful tool if, if used appropriately, but there are just so many ways to get it wrong. I think that dating apps have led to a sort of commodification of relationships where you're you're just one swipe away from a trade-in, right? And I think that that has really damaged young people. What I hear from my students, for example, is that they'll go on Tinder, not because they're looking even for a hookup, but just as a way to kind of validate their self-esteem. So in some ways, it's an extension of Instagram. I do, however, have a lot of friends who've met their lifelong companions and spouses over the social media site. So it's not like, I mean, I think it, it, it could have a place. It just, just like one's iPhone in general, it should have a more limited place than it does. And when you're in college, it's like the only time until you get to a retirement home, right? Where you're living with at least a couple thousand people, more or less your age. That's the time to maybe not use those apps, but to ask in person. That's so interesting. And I listened to one of your presentations and you talked about love and eros and intimacy in a way that I really honestly never heard. I thought it was so fascinating. And so I wanted to ask you about that 
because I think we all hear the word love all the time, but there are four types of love. And you talk about Eros. I would love if you could go into what Eros is. Sure, Angela. So one of the arguments that my co-author Tom Smith and I offer in this book is that we're all constructed erotically. We're all erotic creatures. It's part of who we are. We have these exercises in the book, these journal exercises and these thought exercises in which we ask our readers to think about a time, for example, when you've been going on a long hike or you've been trying to work out a problem in mathematics or writing a paper or working on something really, really hard. And then you come across that moment where the thing makes sense or you've been on a long run and something clicks. And you experience, whether it's intellectual or whether it's a physical exertion, you experience that insight or that moment of relief, that I got it moment, you experience it through your whole body. That's an erotic experience. And we argue that we've what's happened in our culture today is that we've asked too little from love, not too much. A lot of people, you know, look around and, and think, oh my gosh, we've got to cover up all those naked bodies. Eroticism is bad. We need less eros, not more. And what Tom and I are convinced of is that we need more eros. We need to understand that we're erotic creatures, but we need to properly direct our erotic longings. We need to properly direct our erotic longings to other people in order to love and be loved, in order to know and be known. That's how we're built. We're built to love and be loved, and we're built to know and be known. That's the point of human living. If you could wave a magic wand, like what are some of the things you would do to redirect that eros in a healthy way? I would move out of insta relationships and into real relationships. I would move out of the kind of fake friendships and into real friendships where my friends I know are giving themselves of me and I'm giving myself to my friend. My friend is making me a better person. I'm making my friend a better person. That they're virtuous friendships in the sort of strict Aristotelian sense of, uh, in the Nicomachean ethics of what what makes a virtuous friendship is that I, I love the good of the other and I act to make that good a reality, right? And the same thing within my romantic relationships is that I, I choose people who I want to love, who want to love me back, who I want to come to know, and who want to know me as well. It's really they're moving into the real relationships and with all the kind of heartache and suffering that uh, that involves and away from the curated relationships that we find online. That's beautiful. Find friendships that cry for you, pray for you. They're there for you. You know, I think we all, you're so right, that desire to be known and feel known, I think is truly one of the most beautiful ways love is displayed and people are hungry for that. Which it's so interesting because I think that's why social media is so big because you want to be known and you want you want to show that. So you've studied history and philosophy and you're on the front lines at Villanova. Where do you think things are trending if we continue kind of on this free for all, if you will? I mean, I think people are it's important to have conversations and people are like you and I today, but it's still kind of just the Wild West with social media and all that. Where do you think? things will trend? So that's a really good question, Angela. I think that young adults absolutely understand that what they're encountering on social media is not what they're truly seeking. It's very easy to get them to admit that they spend too much time on their phones, they're addicted in all these ways, it's so hard to do. What's really hard 
is to build out that alternative, is to build out those sort of leisure activities with real people that aren't mediated through our phones, right? But they're mediated through real encounters. It's the alternative that we have to help them build out. Not just the put your phone away, put your phone away, stop gaming, stop texting, stop, right? It's not just the weeding and the pruning, but it's the giving life to the sort of new plants. It's cultivating new plants that I think is really important. That's what we have to help our young people do today. Cultivation, that is the key. And I think that's so healthy to not just look at it like, don't do this, don't do that, but also say yes to new things and new experiences. Do you think? people who believe in God and maybe people that are not as religious, quote unquote, do you think that they approach dating differently? So that's a good question. The sort of social scientific data does not speak well of Christians in the U.S. in terms of rates of divorce and et cetera. I don't think we can turn to social scientific data and say, oh, Christians do marriage better than other religious communities or non-religious communities in the U.S. I think that's a problem. It doesn't speak well of, of Christians, but it's, it doesn't mean that marriage is a sacramental marriage is a, is a bad idea or anything. It just means that a lot of us are getting it wrong a lot of the time, right? Uh, I do think it's, it's important for, especially once that you enter into a, a serious relationship to ask those lifelong questions about how are you going to become a lifelong companion to somebody else? How's your boyfriend or girlfriend thinking about being a lifelong companion to you? And it seems to me one of the most important questions to ask beyond really even do you or do you not believe in God is do you and or do you not believe in lifelong companionship? That we're not entering into this with an exit strategy, that we're committed to this for the long haul, and yet you're going to be my lifelong companion no matter how, sort of what what struggles and triumphs we're going to share together. That, to me, is the key question, and that that word divorce is just going to be off the table. It's a really important discipline early on in, in your marriage to just not even say the word. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Coming from a divorced family, it, it was so painful going through that. And I, you said you had four kids. I'm the oldest of four, and I saw a lot of stuff at a young age. And my husband and I both share that experience through our families. So I know when we got married, we were like, that is a curse word. That word is off limits. So that brings me to my final question. For someone that is feeling frozen in dating and they're just like, oh, no, I'm done. Totally checked out here. Can you give them a few tips on what they can do to jumpstart their dating life? Absolutely. So I would encourage you to not go on one date, but go on two dates with two different people. And the bar has to be really low. People who are not repugnant to you, people who you could stand to have a, a latte with for 45 minutes to 90 minutes for not a long time. Just give it a shot because you might be surprised. So much of what happens is unexpected in our romantic lives that you just need to be open to the possibility. And so it's just opening yourself up to the possibility of being surprised by life that should lead young adults to pick up that phone and ask somebody out for a cup of coffee, for a hike, for an ice cream, for anything, really. A short person-to-person -person conversation with your clothes on. 
Got it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and wisdom sharing with us your experiences and all the amazing things that you're up to. So how can people find you if they want to read your books or listen to some of your lectures? Just my name and Villanova, Anna Moreland at Villanova. My information's all over the internet. Would love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moreland. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Angela. It's been a delight to talk to you. What an opportunity to talk to Dr. Moreland. She has so much insight to share, and it was all backed up by social science and what she's seen in her own classroom from the last 15 years. There's a few things I'm definitely taking away from this conversation. The first, she said, it's not just about the weeding out, it's also about the cultivation. At the end of the day, it's so easy to tell other people or yourself what not to do. Don't give in to the worst parts of hookup culture. Don't live your life like you're in a Tinder ad. Okay, great. If I don't do that, what does dating look like? It's really important to just clear out some room in your brain and think about what should dating look like for me? How am I going to develop these relationship muscles? Dr. Moreland says that in the short term, you can go on dates with a few different people and just learn how to connect with them. I do not recommend bringing out a list of things that you're looking for on the first date. But in the long term, when the time is right, you can have those big conversations about spending your life together and what does that mean. To me, I do think being on the same page with faith is important. Why? Well, faith lays the foundation for what we base our life decisions on. When hard times hit, which newsflash, that will happen for everyone, what will be our guiding compass? Do you both share that same compass? Do you both share that same foundation? I know what really hit me also was her saying, it's not just about putting the phone away, getting less screen time, we hear that all the time, but actually replacing those with in-person relationships. So for me, my homework, walking away from this, is going to plan a few lunches in person versus just chatting online. I challenge you to do the same and tell us how that goes. Message us on Instagram or email us your story. I love hearing from you guys. My email is Angela at allstringsattachedpod.com. Thanks so much for joining All Strings Attached. I can't wait for our next episode as we continue to unpack the journey of love, dating, and sex today. All Strings Attached is hosted by me, Angela Blair. The show is executive produced by Soul Shop, and our production coordinator is Spencer Tropper. Special thanks to the folks at City Reach Church and Daniel Rudnai for this awesome recording studio. Follow me at Official A Blair on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and follow the show at All Strings Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok too. Sign up for my newsletter at allstringsattachedpod.com. And if you go all out and send me an email at Angela at allstringspod.com, I may even respond. 
Don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts like every other show tells you to do. Until next time, I'm Angela Blair.